After the Inquiry by Jolin Tan is a novel that purports to discuss bureaucracy and politics, bureaucratic politics in Singapore. So what can a novel tell us about politics in general, but also specifically what can it tell us about Singapore politics? So, good evening everybody. Welcome to episode 60 of Tetarik with Walid to end of the season. As I always say, each season is set, uh, comprises 10 episodes. Uh, so, we have today with us the author of uh, this book by Ethos, After the Inquiry. This is the second edition, by the way. It's a very pretty cover. So, if you guys are interested, please you guys can get this from the Ethos uh, website for $19 uh, without, uh, without GST. Uh, there's no boy band performance, unfortunately. Uh, and I think um, some people should, should be banned from social media. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, we'll discuss uh, the broader implications of what uh, the author, Jolene, is trying to tell us. Thank you so much, Jolene, for doing this. You are in London now, right? Uh, I live in um, I live in Warwickshire, so I'm a couple of hours away from London. Okay, so that's nearer to Coventry. Yes, yes, yes. that's right. Okay, all right. Okay, so thank you so much. So, uh, Jolene, so let's let's get to it. So, this book, uh, why why did you write it? What do you hope to achieve from it? I mean, it was published in 2021, right? So, this is the second print so you must have done well uh, so obviously it spoke to an audience so what exactly do do you want people to get out of it what is your objective and maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself first as well yeah sure okay um so maybe i'll start by talking about myself um i work in ngo communications um i i guess what's relevant to this is previously i used to work at aware um, as the head of communications, advocacy and research. And I also, um, for a while, did a lot of freelance communications work for NGOs and academics in Singapore. So I worked with Academia SG, for example. Um, I worked very closely with Tio Yuyen in promoting her book on inequality in Singapore. Um, I worked with the Minimum Income Standards uh, team who were looking to define the amount of income required for a basic standard of living in Singapore. So lots of different uh, work around research and policy communications on equality and human rights. Uh, as you mentioned, I now live in England. So I work in a completely different sector, still in NGO communications, but with a focus on um, deforestation for agricultural commodities. So I guess for Singapore, the context that we know best for this will be like the haze from Indonesia right. when there's clearance of land for pulp, paper, palm oil, um, but also, you know, clearance of land for soy and beef in other parts of the world is also huge and is a major cause of forest loss and carbon emissions. So I work now in that sector. Um, yeah, so that's me by background. Um, and the other question you had was uh, to talk about the book. Yes. Uh, I should say at this point, <laughs> I'm yeah. I should, I should say at this point that I could talk. I can just generally talk. Right. <laughs> Left to my own devices, I will keep talking. So stop me, please stop me at any point. Okay, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um. 
Yeah, so the book, I'm super envious that you have a copy because I still haven't seen that type oh, really? of... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've right. seen, seen pictures, but I haven't held a copy myself. So I still have edition one. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine is pretty, I think. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I will always, I will always love all of my books. Um, okay. But I do have, I do particularly like the look of that one. Okay. Um, so you asked me... Um, what do what you want to get out of the book? Yeah. yeah, what do I want to get out of the book? Okay, so I think this is a complicated question for a novelist. I think that the non-fiction writer can maybe speak more simply about their purpose and say, right. you know, my purpose is to shed light on X event or Y phenomenon. Um, I think that for me, the, the headline answer for what I want to achieve with a book of a fiction, world of fiction will always be to give pleasure to the reader, um, to tell an interesting story in a rewarding way. I think that in terms of uh, form and approach in this book, my hope was to give people the thrill of feeling the clues fall into place as they, you know, the mystery builds throughout the book. But then um, when things become clear and the dominoes fall and you can see the whole pattern from the sky, I think that's a very satisfying feeling, I hope, for a reader. Um, but, you know, b beyond that headline purpose, obviously there's all sorts of other purposes uh, built into the book um, to uh, examine some certain questions also about Singapore society and the way that we live. So you will see that in the front of the book, there is an epigraph from Tio Yu Yen from her book, uh, This is What Inequality Looks Like. And it's just a very simple line. Once we see, we cannot, must not unsee. And um, I would say that when I first had the, the, the central idea for this story occur to me, it was actually as I was reading this book by Yu Yen, and I was flipping back and forth the pages to check her footnotes. And, uh, and then this, all at once, this idea occurred to me of a footnoted report written by um, an ambitious bureaucrat uh, in the Singapore context. And, and that was where like, the kind of seed crystal for me came. Uh, so I, I very much wanted to explore this idea of uh, seeing certain things about Singapore society, but then for a whole range of different reasons coming to unsee them again right. and to erase our knowledge of, of things that we have encountered. Wow, wow. Very mysterious indeed the way you have <laughs> set it up. Uh, by the way, uh, you'll always do well quoting Tio Yu Yen with me. Can I ask you, uh, because you said your ultimate objective is uh, to to entice or please the reader right but i guess there will be always multiple ways to do that right why do you adopt a particular way right i mean why even write fiction right by the way i i must confess i have not read uh, fiction since then i rarely ever read fiction since then brown like angels and demons or lost symbol is probably my last one so it was, it was a change of pace for me uh I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Uh, but I must, I, I wanted to ask why in this particular way, first of all, why through fiction? And second of all, uh, what is the message beyond that, right? Because obviously every author will want to please the reader, right? But then what is the, why do you do it through a particular way, like highlighting bureaucracy and bureaucratic politics in Singapore, rather than through, I don't know, 
do a TikTok video of boy bands, you know, just now Yen was saying. Uh, yeah, so why, why this particular Yeah, I mean, maybe if I sit, start singing, you will rapidly understand why not. See, <laughs> why not have, the boy bands? You have the, uh, the, uh, the understanding, the intelligence to know that, but many people do not realize that. <laughs> yeah, yeah why? Why a book of fiction? Wow, this is like a really good question because I guess for me, um, reading fiction is so foundational <laughs> to my life and how I make sense of the world that there is a level on which, um, I mean, I think recently I have started to read a lot more non-fiction um, and to enjoy it a lot more. I think the balance has shifted, but, but there is some very deep level for me, uh, which you can almost call quasi-religious um, for which fiction is the way that I make sense of the world and nothing is really quite real. Wow. <laughs> um, as real, um, if I haven't, if I, I feel like it's part of a ongoing dialogue with the whole world of, of fiction books that are out there. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if this is a very coherent answer, except that on some level to me, it's the most real thing that I could, I could produce is a world of fiction. Wow, wow. okay. Thank you. No, no, no. I, uh, that uh, that explains it. So, can can, can I ask? Because I, I wanna I also wanna discuss this more broadly so that there are no spoilers, right? In case people wanna buy the book. So, uh, a lot of times, right, when people uh, talk about bureau bureaucracy, they they assume, especially in Singapore, not uniquely in Singapore, but especially in Singapore, they assume that bureaucratic decisions are just that they are bureaucratic, right? Uh, they always think that bureaucratic decisions are not political. I mean, it's ideologyless, it's valueless. Uh, it's about the science. That's what we hear a lot now, right? It's about the science. When when science describes, right, it doesn't prescribe most of the time. It's public policy that pre prescribes based on the science, of course. Um, but uh, can you speak to that? Yeah, so that's a that's an interesting question. This idea that a bureaucratic decision is bureaucratic and not political, I would say that there for me there are two ways to answer this. Right, one is to question whether anything about how a public agency makes decisions and allocates public resources can be described as not political. And like there's a fundamental sense in which that doesn't make sense to me. So let's say you have a bureaucracy whose role is to approve or unapprove or approve or reject uh, a, dorm a dormitory residence application for a pass to visit the community. I think they've started, they've done away with those now, I believe, but for a long time, that was how these 300,000 men got to leave their dorms, right? Was they had to apply for a pass. Um, and you could say, okay, maybe we have all these criteria uh, and it's just a bureaucratic checkbox decision. Uh, do they meet it or not meet it? Do we have enough this week? Um, but how can the decision to say that somebody must stay in this one building unless we give approval or don't give approval and to say that only X number of these people can leave or don't leave, how can that be anything other right. than political? It is about how we allocate the resource of space and time and, and liberty um, to these people. So it, to me, you know, that's, that's a clear example. Um, and or like if I decide, okay, there are certain criteria for how I decide that I'm going to clear this forest and build some public housing. Um, but how you decide it, what principles you use, whether you think that it's more important to have cheaper 
and more straightforward urban development or whether you decide that actually our forests are very few and there's very little left and um, we want to preserve them for uh, biodiversity reasons or, or for allowing our children to grow up in a country that has uh, access to nature, for example. That Those are also political decisions and the framework that was set up is, is infused with politics. It's unavoidable. Um, so that answer one. Answer one, how can anything not be political? Answer two is the second level. Um, there's also a second level, which is, let's say you have all this framework. Um, is it also possible that bureaucracies that are supposed to be dedicated to the public interest end up making decisions that are influenced by the interests of specific political parties? And this to me is also, it must be a risk anywhere. Because any public agency, which, you know, their, their bosses, the ultimate bosses are... Uh, often a political office holder, there will often be incentives or pressures to act in one way or another. Um, and so in Singapore, like in anywhere else, uh, there must also be a risk that public agencies are also political in, in that second sense of being unduly partisan. Mm, okay. Thank you. Yeah, that, that was really clear. And I think a lot of people think of politics only in the realm of electoral politics, which is why maybe that that idea comes about right oh this is bureaucratic this is political like oh this is apolitical if there is ever such a thing right uh, in anything but especially bureaucracy so i i always find that fascinating uh, so so let's let's move on and i i want to explore that theme later on as well in a later question so uh, one of the themes of your book i suppose is pr right so uh, the spin uh, the spin of uh, bureaucracies, government agencies, and they spend a lot, a lot on PR generally. Um, everybody does, right? All big corporations do that. Uh, so governments do that as well. Uh, and you think about how they spend on influencers, even in the previous elections, you know, uh, on TikTok uh, and so on. So, uh, so what exactly? Uh, is the criticism towards the government when when people say sorry I should rephrase it how when when people say that uh, there is a PR problem with the government right uh, it seems to me right what people are saying and you you hear this all the time even in GE 2020 oh there was a PR problem with the government right it means that the, they are I mean the spin is not right the spin is not right. Uh, do you think that kind of criticism towards the government, which, by the way, a lot of government officers also always say that. Right? I've heard this multiple times, right? Um, oh, it's the way we communicated that. <laughs> the policy wasn't communicated well enough. It's not that the policy is wrong or inadequate. It's just that we didn't communicate enough. So people didn't understand it the way that we did, right? Do you think uh, that belittles the problem? Uh, of, and does that put the bureaucracy in a difficult position? Because if you view something as a PR problem, right, then the solution is more PR, not a fundamental rethinking of policies and decisions. Yeah, I mean, what you're saying resonates uh, really, really strongly with me. I mean, I work in communication, so obviously I see it as an important and valuable thing. And it is certainly possible, in principle, for something that is the correct decision 
to go down very badly because it's poorly communicated. Right. That's definitely in principle a possibility. Right. But I agree with you um, that often when we hear it, especially many, many times I have heard it in the Singapore context, I do think that is a way of trying to tai chi away <laughs> the fundamental issue, which is that sometimes we understand perfectly well <laughs> what you are saying. Government representatives, we totally understand what your law is proposing. You know, I think I heard this a lot with like um, POFMA, when POFMA was being passed. So many times they were like, oh, there's yeah. misunderstanding and we never explained properly. And I'm like, no, 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 we understand. We just don't agree. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you that it is a means of uh, sometimes of uh, trying to downplay the extent of genuine disagreement. Mm. Yeah. And, and partly when I wrote this book, um, you know, I guess when I was working in comms for various NGO and civil society actors in Singapore, um, I would say things, I would try to find things out, and then I would see the statements that come out from government, and I would sometimes think to myself, wow, I wonder what it's like to be the comms person on that side, and if I had to spin this, I spend a lot of time thinking, if I had to spin this thing that to me seems very wrong, <laughs> but if I had to spin it for the government, how would I spin it? Right, right. Um, and to some extent, the thought process is, is something that I indulged when I was writing this book as well. Yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess spin has negative connotations when I, I, I use it in a fairly neutral way because you always there will always be multiple ways to take a policy. So you always want to put a positive spin on it, right? So... I mean, that's that's just the way it is, right? So, uh, so yeah, I I I I definitely agree with you, and I think that uh, if we continue to think that oh, this is the prop, this is a PR problem, right? And I've even even very recently, I I've, I've seen a lot of times when I send I send a post by a politician to somebody, right? The reaction, especially by civil servants, the reaction will always be right. Oh, they have such poor stuffers. It's not a reaction of, oh, the minister, what is he saying? What is she saying? Right? It's so I feel like the PR thing is also a way to insulate people from criticisms as well. And oh, this is a stuffer problem. Yeah, that's very that's a very fascinating uh element to it that I hadn't actually thought about, but um but I think yeah that makes a lot of sense. And um, you see it also like when there was a lot of discussion around inequality sparked by Yuyen's book in 2018. And I noticed the recurrent phrase was, um, it is a it is a last mile problem. Everything is fine. It's just at the last mile, we are not delivering correctly. And a way that, that's a way again of like uh, distancing right. the, the decision makers at the top from what's actually happening on the ground. Actually, right. if you're at the top, you own the whole lot. Right. <laughs> Whether things are delivered last month or not, it's also your your job to solve, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I mean, it's it's very interesting, right? Because uh, when it it's a last last mile last mile success, <laughs> you'll see people at the top very <laughs> eager to take credit for it, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, so there's a question here um, by Arun. Drawing on your experience in NGOs and social issue comps, what are your thoughts on the rhetoric being used by some of the newer social movements in Singapore? Oh, very interesting, um, especially on 
on the death penalty and labour rights. Successful, not so much. Also, what challenges do you see the government having encountering them, if any? Oh, that escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so as I think I also said to you when I uh, agreed to do this, I, I, I'm a little bit nervous about commenting on the very latest things because I have not been in Singapore for almost two years now. Um, and although I still follow uh, the news, it's not as closely as I used to. Um, but my instinctive response to hearing the question, and, and I apologize if I'm not getting at what the questioner meant because I haven't been so up to date, is, is a bit of surprise that death penalty and labor rights are seen as new uh, issues or new movements because um, I certainly know people who've been working on them for a very long time. Um, Perhaps what we have now is, I have noticed that around the death penalty, perhaps there is more public mobilization. So I know that recently when uh, this, uh, most recently, uh, I think Tangaraju Supia was, was hanged. Um, and there was uh, quite a large group of people who gave in a letter to the Istana, I believe. Um, so to me, that's that's really... Uh, heartening to see that there is more public mobilization because I think sometimes when I was working on things, especially like with academics, and, and perhaps it's the nature of working with academics, it can feel as though it's the same few people talking, but it's not necessarily getting feet on the ground and 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 people outdoor, right? So to me that's that's a very positive thing that there will be that there is a wider um participation. So that's definitely true of academics, I think. I think a lot of uh, academics uh, in our own bubbles, liberal bubbles especially. Um, but do you think that's true of activists as well? Uh, where maybe maybe activists also think that this is something that is supported by the general public, when actually maybe the general public is very much in favour of the government, at least according to the service we have also. And I do believe also this, that the general public probably, I don't know by how much, uh, but probably the death penalty is pretty popular with, with many people, even just from my own conversations. Do you think that's a problem with activists as well? Um, so uh, I would say yes and no. <laughs> I would say that yes, I think that I definitely did observe and was probably sometimes uh, myself uh, guilty of uh, tending to uh, reach out perhaps to people that's easier to reach because they're already interested or they already agree with you. Um, I think that I'll give you one example of where uh, I, okay, maybe just to take a step back, I think often a lot of activist groups in Singapore also, or at least NGOs traditionally, they also have a very elite focused advocacy model. Right. And I, I, I say this in a fairly neutral sense right. that this is also what to a large extent I remember doing it away is you read the policy papers, you read the draft legislation, you write a report, maybe you talk to the press, maybe you uh, put out some social media posts, but where are you going to where people are and uh, speaking to them and getting that, that mobilization involved as well, rather than simply directing your comments at the decision makers. So that is definitely fairly limited. Um, I would say that in defense of that, that there are also um, serious uh, resource allocation issues in Singapore in terms of access to space. Um, to be able to uh, do a lot of this work more broadly. So, for example, access to schools is very highly restricted. There's a lot of vetting. There's a lot of uh, informal 
perhaps blacklisting <laughs> of certain points of view being presented. Access to public space is also very limited. You know, you can't just, in the same way that you could in many other countries, just get together and sit down somewhere in public and have a big discussion. Like, that. you know, when, when let's say when New Narrative held their democracy classrooms, like, literally all this was, was human beings sitting in a room talking about an issue. Like, I cannot think of anything more benign. And then we heard from, from the, the state-linked uh, media, oh, it's a Soros-linked plot to right. destabilize society. I mean, this is very poor value for money for George Soros <laughs> if he was trying to use this to destabilize society. Like, very, very <laughs> bad strategy. Don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yes. So, so if I could uh, take what you're saying further, you're saying that if activists had the access to that, then public opinion would be different. That's what you're saying. I think it would be possible that public opinion would be different on various things because we've seen this in many, many societies around the world, right? Public opinion starts in one place. There's a process of contestation and then it ends up in another place. And I'm not saying we know 100% where that place would be, but I think that it would be good if we could find out. And I want to give one example of a specific issue where I actually think um, public opinion is much more sympathetic to an activist cause than the government uh, seems to accept. And that is single parents and housing, which I worked on very, very closely while I was at AWARE. And, uh, you know, I think many of you know, if you're an unmarried parent with housing, there are much more restrictions on which flats you can buy, which grants you can get, how long you have to wait, and that kind of thing, how old you have to be. Um, and likewise, with divorced parents, there are also quite a few barriers, although less than for never married parents. And what was interesting to me is that working on this, this was one of the areas where, when I was at AWARE, we did a lot more in the way of uh, public outreach and mobilization than we did for many other things. Like, we got together groups of single parents and their family members in our office, and we got them to give feedback to Louis Ng. We invited him to the office as well. And we went out and did like petitions. Like I like stood in the streets talking to people, saying, "Please sign this petition." And um, we also um, did a lot of social media in terms of like getting uh, various single parents or their children to share their experiences online. And then there were responses, right? And my um, experience with this is that on this issue, pretty much. People in Singapore are very pragmatic. Maybe they want to say, um, shouldn't be single parent. Maybe on some level they want to say that, but they don't want to go further necessarily and say, so you cannot have house. So your child must put up with having to move every two years uh, and pay private rental prices and that kind of thing. They don't necessarily want to go that one step further. And I almost wonder whether, in this case, the Singapore government um, policy makers and decision makers, maybe in their minds, I, I kind of suspect that there's a certain punitive, conservative group that maybe they hear a little bit more loudly and that sounds to them like a bigger group than it really is. Because that was definite. I mean, and I'm no stranger. At AWARE, we were no strangers to being unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> On this issue, I didn't feel it was at all unpopular. People were people were totally for better housing. Right. Right. So just, just final one. Uh, just final one on this uh, activism point. Uh, don't you think that, if I could push you a little, don't you think that that is a little bit, I guess, um, condescending to to the public as well? Oh, isn't that also 
similar to the criticisms we had earlier, right? So of the government, oh, it's the PR which is not, so the people didn't understand, right? So wouldn't this also be, oh, because we, we haven't met with people enough. We haven't discussed them. We haven't, went, we haven't gone to the public schools. This is why they do not believe in the uh, in abolishing the death penalty. Don't you think that activists would? Oh, be I see. As well? Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, so to me, there is a uh, there is a power question here, right? <laughs> um, activists do not have the ability to switch off the access to space of certain opinions at the click of fingers that suddenly all these spaces are close to you and there's no discussion of the perspectives at all and you will only ever hear one side of view in the newspapers. When are the pro-abolition people for the death penalty movement, when are their letters ever published in the newspaper? When are they interviewed or given an interview? I'm not saying that, um, you know, uh, the outcome 100% would be different, but certainly if you take away... <laughs> All of the points of view of inside, how can we say that what results is genuinely what people would think if they, if they could hear? Right. So it's, it's more about the process, right? So let the chips fall where they may, but the process must be there. Right? Yeah, yeah, there should be room for contestation. Okay, thank you so much. So, so there are a lot of questions. So I may, I may miss uh, some, sorry about that. So Angie asked about academics, but uh, we'll discuss that. Uh, in a later episode, probably. Uh, so, uh, Nessa says, Jolene, please come back to Singapore and run for office. Idi uh, <laughs> uh, Amza says, do you feel there's a significant distinction between an ordinary citizen, a civil servant or a bureaucrat, and an elected official within Singapore in terms of policy opinions? Um, oh, there's supposed to be a part two. Uh, so maybe uh, I'll just ask this, do you think there's a significant distinction? Uh, and if mm. other distinctions? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, so I feel my instinct would be to say that I don't assume that, I would not assume that the opinions uh, divide neatly according to this set of groups. I'm sure that among ordinary citizens, there's all kinds of a different range of opinions. Among civil servants, you know, there's very junior ones and very senior ones and in different departments. And likewise, um, with the elected, elected uh, representatives. Uh, but I think what I would say is, I guess when you sign up for, to run for a particular party, uh, you may have some differences of opinion in some respects. But I suppose when you sign up to run, you are signing up to run under their manifesto and yeah. to be subject to the party wing. Etc. So whatever private, like secret, secret feelings you may have, what you say and what you do is what you say and what you do, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I find that I mean, that's thank you for bringing that up because I do find that a lot of uh, party members they one of the first things when you talk to them they will say, oh, party really welcomes diversity of opinion, right? <laughs> uh, and and this is true of not just the PAP but other parties as well. They will always. They will always be keen to mention this, right? And my response is, why did you join them? Why did you cho you choose? I mean, you were chosen, of course, but why did you also choose to join them, right? That means you agree broadly with, and why not just say that, right? Why not just say that? Why be keen to emphasize the diversity of opinion first? And I guess also that's to show that, oh, we are not just foot soldiers. 
you know, we have different opinions, we have minds of our own. So yeah, uh, do you want to say anything to on that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And, and, you know, of course, of course, there's probably some diversity of opinion. But, but yeah, like, I mean, you sign up to join, you, you vote the way you're told to vote. Um, I also think that part of the... So I, I was actually involved in um, uh, editing and supporting um, Cherian George and Donald Lowe in their book, PAP versus PAP. Oh. Um, and you know, the central thesis of their book is that is precisely that there is this diversity of opinion within the PAP and that the best way forward for Singapore is to strengthen the perhaps more uh, liberally minded or equality minded elements of the PAP. Um, so I, I found I find this a very interesting book and one that I thoroughly enjoyed working on. But I personally disagree with some of the assumptions in that central thesis in that there is an assumption a lot of people that PAP can be all things to all people. There's diversity of opinion because they are pragmatic. They have no ideological boundaries. Whatever you want them to be, they will be. So just keep voting for them and hope for the right. rest. I think there's sometimes this mentality. And you also see it in like this, this vision that, oh, if only Talman was in yeah. charge. If only Talman was in charge, everything would be different because his secret heart is so nice and yeah. he's not the mean one. Oh. <laughs> this is the way that people think, right? Uh, um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not convinced. I think that they do have ideological limits. I think that my experience with them, especially on things like uh, housing for single parents um, and... Uh, anything to do with a more redistributive, like entrenching a more redistributive system, I do think it is just outside of their ideological limits. And, and you know, maybe people are happy with that ideology, but it doesn't not exist. It does exist. Yeah. Right, right. So, so thank you for bringing that up. So, I mean, I, I do not want to... I, I rarely ever say that I uh, disagree with uh, Professors Chiran George and Donald Lowe, but I'm... I, <laughs> with you on this uh, and also you know the strand within and it's mostly within our kinds of circles right where you see if only Taman was <laughs> so different right? and 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 then even some people right and I won't mention this because they are my friends as well oh Taman has been sidelined and all if you're sidelined your deputy prime minister that's not really a bad bad sidelining right so we have recreated this image of Taman and I like Taman so no problems I just think that we should not like recreate uh, an image of him which is doesn't jive with rea uh, reality, right? Because it's clearly the PAP is a cadre party. You rise through the ranks if you broadly agree with the ideological assumptions, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be there to begin with. You definitely wouldn't be the deputy prime minister, right? So, and nothing wrong with that. It's just that I think people who are uh, imagining him. Uh, to be someone he's not. I think also they're clutching at straws, right? Because <laughs> yeah, because they, they crave and they are starving for change so much that they, they say this, right? And by the way, this is... Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Prabhupada Chong said liking a person is different from agreeing with their positions. Yeah, definitely. I'm sure he likes me uh, a lot as well, but he disagrees on uh, many things. So, uh, so let's let's use his question right to take the discussion forward right so based on your own involvement in civil society and based on the book itself uh what do you make of this claim or what do you claim about this claim uh of working from within i'm trying to change from within right 
And also, it's not just that. Often, you see that people who are doing that, they adopt a condescension towards other people in civil society, right? Oh, you are not working like me, right? And I'm talking not just about bureaucrats, even civil society, uh, as you would know, right? And then they would say, oh, you guys are not as smart as we are, right? See, we get things done, right? You guys are too, you're banging your heads against the wall. I mean, we've, we've all heard this before, right? So what do you make of this claim? Do you think there's some truth? It's a very interesting one. And yeah, I mean, it sounds familiar to me also. And I would say that um, I'm a very both and rather than either or kind of person in general. I totally think there must be space for uh, people who are on the inside to uh, push for positive change, just as there is also a way for people on the outside to do it. And I think that both are helpful and um, I think what I would say is that when you are uh, genuinely trying to change something which is entrenched within the powerful system of decision makers at the moment, um, this will always come at a cost to yourself. And what I would be surprised by is if people think that uh, trying to change within is compatible with being rewarded <laughs> as part of the structure and being uh, promoted as quickly as you otherwise would be if you weren't trying to change things. This I would be skeptical of. I think that it would be very surprising to me given all the incentive structures and the discipline systems that exist in any organization that, that try to get anybody in an organization to sign up to their goals. I would be very surprised if you can rise to the ranks and also push change and then somehow everything, everybody win, 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 fast, high, all very happy. This, this I find uh, implausible. That's an excellent answer, I think. Um, unfortunately, though, people may start believing, <laughs> may start believing <laughs> that, right? Oh, yeah. So, may think that the, the opposite of what you're saying, they may actually genuinely believe that both things are compatible. You can rise through the ranks and... Uh, but, yeah, okay. I mean, uh, I, I'm inclined to, to think like you as well. I think we need both sorts of people. So, I never begrudge anybody for joining any party. I think we need... You know, the thing is the party, uh, let's say in Singapore, the PAP will always need people. And there will always be many people queuing up. And I rather good people than not good people uh, join the party. So I, I am under. I have. I know. I do not begrudge anybody. In fact, I would want uh, good people to have that ambition, right? Uh, where, where for me, uh, some people lose me is that they think that is the only way to effect change, and there's no room for other sorts of. For me, you need all kinds of people. You need pressure from within, pressure from without, you need people who agree, people who disagree, and you need all sorts of all sorts of people. And I think I think we are in agreement there, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um what whatever gets changed to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you. So um now let's let's talk a little bit about censorship because that was also one of the themes that came up in the book, right? So mm -hmm. exactly does this censorship look like in Singapore specifically, but in your book as well? Yeah, it's a good question. So like I said earlier, um, I wanted to explore this idea of like seeing and unseeing, right? Um, the way that we, uh, the evidence of what we see or hear tells us one thing, but then the official narrative tells us another thing. 
um, and how can you displace the evidence that we see in order to install the official narrative and censorship is obviously a key a key part of that um, i I try to um, I think uh, demonstrate the ways in which people have very different kinds of pressures or incentives to uh, sometimes to actively lie, sometimes just omit parts of the truth, sometimes to rewrite the truth for themselves, um, and also recognizing that um, none of this is just about some pure quality of like inner courage, right? Some people are in a better position to withstand pressures than others. Some people have more resources. Yeah. Um, so uh, I try to present a nuanced view of that. Um, one interesting example of censorship for me in relation to the book is actually about the promotion of the book itself. Um, and uh, this involves some elements of censorship and some of self-censorship. Because what happened was we wanted to have a launch event for the book when it was first published in 2021. And this was just as COVID restrictions were easing up a little bit. We could have a few things in person as long as it's not too many people. And we actually, um, Ethos actually booked uh, Arts House. The Arts House as a space for the book launch. And the date and time were agreed and everything was settled. And then they got a copy of the book. Um, and then mumble, mumble, embarrassed phone call, sorry, cannot, and cancel. <laughs> this happened before. It's like deja vu. Didn't this happen for Connie's book as well? Exactly. So the, the, I'll tell you, I'll continue the story until we get to the Connie's book part. So I was very irritated and I was like, this is really ridiculous and so ironic, given what the book is about, that they did this. <laughs> um, and then we had another event at um, Epigram Bookstore instead. And I sort of referred to this happening, but I didn't name and shame the arts house. And so this is an interesting exercise in self-censorship. I decided not to name them. And the reason why I didn't name them was I didn't want to get Ethos in trouble. I didn't want Ethos's relationship with them to be damaged and not be able to hold other things there. Um, but then, a few years later, I saw the news about Connie's book. And then I was so irritated. I was like, I've been such a chump, right? I've been such a fool because I thought by being quiet, you can make things better. But actually, when you're quiet, all that happens is they go and do it again. Mm. So then I was very annoyed. And I, I publicly commented on that as well and said that the same thing that happened to Connie happened to uh, this book. Um, and this is an example of how public spaces or spaces, spaces get pulled. And so it's not possible to know what people would really think if they had access to all the perspectives and all the discussion. Right, right. So now that line, mumble, mumble, embarrass, boom, call. <laughs> Sorry, cannot. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I think it will be familiar to many people. <laughs> that line. Uh, yeah, it's funny because it's true. Uh, okay, so, so yeah, so that is self censorship is um, is quite prevalent. You would say in Singapore still. Um. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, so when we were working on things that uh, for you know, just thinking through all the various civil society work, it was so common, right? People would say, "I agree with you. I support, but I don't want to put my name to this. Yeah, my I can provide you information, but I don't want to say." And to some extent, I also understand it's not necessarily a nefarious thing. Sometimes it's just very, very tiresome <laughs> to it's it's like extra work, right? To to front things. So yeah. that part I understand. But there was definitely also a feeling that 
um, maybe your job will suffer, maybe your reputation yeah. will suffer, maybe your NGO, your access to funding may suffer, your access to permits, uh, to event spaces. Um, so uh, better not say. Yeah, and I, you know, again, I, I think people have to, I mean, a lot of people, they just want to live their lives. So I honestly, I have come to terms with that as well. You know, when, when people say that, I mean, for me, I'm, I grudgingly accept that that's the reality as well. Uh, but where I would draw the line is, oh, if they say that in private, right? But in public, they come and slam you, right? Oh, that one is, <laughs> that's, a, that's a different matter. Yeah. If they say that yeah. in public, they're silent, then fine. For me, that's, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I think there's still a lot. I think you have been uh, in the scene far longer than I have, and I think you would know uh, this better. And there's definitely that. And I think a lot of it is also not entirely rational, but not entirely irrational as well, because you are using other events to transpose it on this particular event, right? I've even had, I've even heard this and. I've asked uh, some opposition folks as well that they don't want to be pictured with opposition people because they don't. I had somebody who didn't want to be pictured with me. And <laughs> I'm not yeah. an opposition member or anything, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and PAP folks on. Like, so I don't know what, as in what uh, is that a different level of censorship or whatever it is. I mean, yeah, but. Uh, that has happened before, and unfortunately, still, it still does happen. Sorry, you wanted to say something. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'm just just agreeing with you. I mean, I had a similar experience. I remember having lunch with a very old friend, like somebody I had known for like uh, twenty years or something, and and he worked in the public service, and he was like, oh, he was like quite seriously like. Oh, I'm a little bit concerned that my my colleagues might walk past and see me with you, and I'm like, I'm nobody. <laughs> I really don't. So, so that's the thing. It's not some people say, oh, you've reached those uh, HNN. No, I'm not. That's the thing. I'm really not. I'm really, I mean, I'm not Yoyan or anything, right? So it's just that people in their minds, they have created all these images and that's that's the scary part, right? The, the pervasiveness of uh, self-censorship, right? Now, okay, so let's move on, right? Because the, the book is, yes, it's about uh, politics, but uh, it's also about the inadequacies of bureaucracies, right? Uh, sometimes. And the troubles of bureaucracy is, a lot of it is common everywhere, right? So you reference, yes, minister in... Uh, the interview with PJ, right? The quintessential public servant, right? Yes, Minister. And maybe this this younger crowd have not watched it before, but go and watch it. It's you you'll get YouTube clips. It's uh, it is gonna be a treat. So, uh, what is the difference between how or why is the Singapore bureau Singaporean bureaucracy unique? Why is it? Uh, a, why are are your criticism criticisms if indeed they are? Uh, unique to the Singapore bureaucracy rather than other bureaucracies elsewhere, right? Isn't isn't bureau aren't bureaucracies generally rigid and so on? Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, so I think rather than necessarily saying that any one part of it is unique, I do think there's a kind of flavor combination <laughs> that is quite specific to Singapore and and um, 
so just thinking about some of the elements of that, right? So, okay. Um, so bureaucracies everywhere uh, will consist of public agencies that can exercise power, make decisions over people's aspects of people's lives and can allocate public monies. Um, so what I would say is some of the features that I think are quite uh, strong in Singapore, I won't say they're unique to Singapore, but particularly strong, is, for example, we have relatively weak conception of citizen rights as opposed to state duties mm. that with the state exercising its power has a duty to the citizens that is exercising their power over and also that there are constraints that they must exercise it for certain purposes and certain ways and that citizens what we have is a very weak understand or very weak sense that citizens are entitled and I use this word with no negative connotations, citizens are entitled to enforce these. So um, I think that this is, uh, if I can borrow from uh, this very wonderful line from Ng Kok Ho, who is, a, as some of you probably know, is a researcher who has looked at poverty, inequality, homelessness. There's this wonderful line that he had in a discussion of Comcare, where he said in Comcare, uh, when there's people talk about it, um, there is very little talk about like um, what it would look like to uplift citizens' lives, what it would look like if the cash transfers succeeded. Instead, he said, there is so much talk about gatekeeping that one could be forgiven for thinking that the goal of Comcare is to gatekeep itself. Right. And uh, to me, this is a very strong aspect of a lot of Singaporean bureaucracies. It's a combination of incredible levels of detail and incredible levels of like, like, managerialist rationality everything's very well documented all the processes run at the times that they're supposed to run and uh things have got all the very very correct paperwork that everybody bothers to do so it's as if it's like very very sophisticated then at the same time there's a very limited concept that citizens interests and citizens rights are there to be served and that states have duties and constraints so things like when a public agency makes a decision uh, very feeling very, under very limited obligation to give reasons for the decision. There's very few channels for independent review of those decisions, um, and uh, it's very it's just a very interesting contrast that is so sophisticated, but then on one level so um, un, in almost inhuman. You see this also at international human rights treaties that Singapore is part of. I I have been to. Um, the UN as part of my work for AWARE. Um, and what's interesting is that Singapore's reporting on its human rights treaties, its reporting is so beautiful. Its reports are so long. The footnotes are so extensive. The programs referenced are so many and so many details are given. But the substance of, of the uh, protection of the, the individual's rights is actually much much more limited than the amount of verbiage would suggest. And, and to me, this is a really fascinating combination uh, and quite a dispiriting one, and one that I also try to capture in the book. I will add one last thing here that is, I think, quite unique to Singapore. Singapore is really small. Singapore is really small and so uniformly urban. I think in general, we have very little conception of things that the state and that human beings just can't control. Um, or things that are just natural parts of our landscape, whether it's the human landscape or the physical landscape, that, that things are uh, slightly 
really wild or grow out of control and that you just have to leave things to develop organically. It's a thing that's very lacking from the way that we uh, think of things in general because we're not used to size. Okay. Thank you so much. So, uh, when you said that uh, that uh, the, the earlier point, uh, the, the small point, I, I definitely uh, take it. So, I think that comes with its own. And also, it makes bureaucracy more potent, right? Uh, in some ways, the fact that it's uh, very small, it's easily uh, or more easily controlled. Um, the first point is not that I agree with this, but how would you respond to people who say, oh, that's a feature of Asian societies, which is, I mean, you are very familiar with the debate, right? The Asian values debate. And even though the term Asian values is not being used anymore, but you still see the concept is still uh, present, right? Western societies are different, right? And that's why they have blah, 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 government shutdown, blah, 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 as if, as if America is the only Western society or democratic society in the world. Uh, but uh, that is what a lot of, uh, people who are supportive of this kind of restrictions to individual rights, where it's state or community over individual. What, how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, wow, so many levels on which there are things to say. First of all, it's just like factually wrong, right? Who are the largest, <laughs> the largest democracies in the world by population? It's like, it's like India, it's Indonesia. Now, okay, not to say that, that, that they haven't sometimes had problems with like you know some of the, the assaults on democratic institutions but what country hasn't had that right um so it's like or like like you know countries like uh taiwan or south korea places that, that have such strong taiwan and korea are very important right because then they would say oh it's not really asian asian values it's confucian values <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, so first of all, I dispute the, even like in factual terms, like your characterization in this way is very suspect. But also, it's so, um, it's such a top down view of things to say that what the institution, official institutions and authorities have imposed is an expression of the country as a whole. In every country, there are debates about, or there are, uh, there's content, contestation about many of these things, right? Uh, in the UK, where I live now, we've just had very controversially crackdowns on yeah. protests in a way that's very reminiscent of Singapore. This is also very highly contested. The same debates are happening with their own local inflections and different flavours yeah. in many, many different places. And there's no, it just doesn't, you know, even many of the ways in which we have chosen to um, limit uh, individual rights or participation in Singapore are inherited from the British colonial right. apparatus. Um, the same similar ways of thinking or techniques. So I just, um, I, these are ongoing contestations everywhere and every society is trying to find their way through to them. And I don't think it's helpful to be like, okay, Asia is like that, then non-Asia is like that. It doesn't help us to understand what's best for us. That only, can only be done by us thinking and talking to one another. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. I think it's a, uh... It's also, I think, in many ways, it's not that I don't think there are differences between societies and their values. It's not that. I mean, purely empirically, there are. I think we cannot deny that. But whether that translates into, oh, being more comfortable with authoritarianism or being less comfortable with democracy is something I think, I agree with you, is more suspect. Um, 
So, okay, so we've gone almost an hour already. Uh, so I don't want to uh, overstay my welcome, <laughs> my virtual welcome. So, uh, can you tell us why? By the way, uh, there is no promo code, or oh, is there? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, $19, yeah, yeah, so $19 before GST. I mean, it's very, uh, it's very affordable already anyway. So I, I really think that uh, we must, as much as possible, support our local uh, publishers. So I try as much as possible to buy whatever books I can get from local bookstores and local publishers. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, the, the book industry, the publishing industry is already not in a good place. Um, so we must do our part. So, so please don't ask for promo codes and so on. Uh, <laughs> in the comments. So why, uh, why, Jolene, why should people get this book? Uh, first of all, because uh, Ilo by MG says bar cover is so beautiful. So that's one reason. Cover is very beautiful. Is. I agree. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think that. I have been very uh, moved and pleased by how much it seems to have responded. Uh, people have seemed to have responded to it. Um, you know, it's so amazing in this day and age that an author can see people talking about their book yeah. to one the, to one another and, and and see the reviews and the thoughts that people yeah. have. And I have been so um, yeah bowled over by the re the reception that it's had. So. I would say, uh, ask, go and look at the Goodreads reviews, go and look at the hashtag after the inquiry and see what other people have said about it. And, and I hope that that is enough to convince you that it is worth reading. Right. So we started this session with a quote by Yoyen. We are going to end by, uh, with a recommendation from Sharon George. He says that this book is highly recommended. Is there in the comments? <laughs> Uh, so please get the book. Uh, Jolene, thank you so much. I hope there is a sequel or there will be other uh, other interventions of yours. Uh, and I also, it's not it's not my style to look at politics through fiction, uh, but I, I thought it was, uh, it was fascinating for me. I definitely, I had to also get out of my comfort zone. Non-fiction, Reading and writing is much easier. <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this uh, this position, uh, this uh, this episode, and definitely enjoyed the book as well. All right. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I, it's been so much fun. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Okay. Good night. Bye bye. Bye.